poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is a run-at-once elite coach who is simply one of the best overall poker players on the face of the planet, Kevin Rabichow. K-Rab has been fully immersed in the world of heads-up, no-limit hold'em cash games for well over a decade, all the while building a reputation as one of the best and most highly sought-after private coaches in the business. As a matter of fact, here's what Greatness Village's own Coach Thomas thinks of Mr. Rabichow. Quote, I could ogle Kevin Rabichow all day long. He is legitimately a god among men. End quote. That's almost enough to make a longtime poker coach jealous, but I can't wait for Terminator Thomas to fully get his voice back. In today's conversation with Kevin Rabichow, you're going to learn all about his recent victory in the Run It Once Legends Showdown event, where he took down a who's who of poker behemoths, including past CPG guest Fedor Holtz, why transitioning to MTTs sometimes annoys even Mr. Kevin Rabichow, K-Rab's thoughts on studying even when you don't feel like it, and much, much more. And before you dive into this conversation with one Kevin Rabichow, if you haven't checked out greatnessvillage.com yet, go do so. Sign up to the email newsletter. You'll be sent a link that will plug you in to a high-level community of people who are passionate about improving their poker game on a daily basis. One more time, that's greatnessvillage.com. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you one of the best and brightest stars in the whole world of poker, Kevin Rabichow. What is up, Mr. Rabichow? Welcome back to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you been? Thanks, Brad. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. Excited to have you back. The last time we spoke, if my memory serves me correctly, you were about to embark on a heads-up challenge at Run It Once. So why don't you tell the listener how that went? Yeah, I guess, I guess it's been a little while. Um, that went very well. I I won. <laughs> so that it. was yeah. How did that I feel? Scooped it. Yeah, that was. I mean, that was cool. That was like. So I guess a little background. Um, the format was we had like six pretty high skill heads up no limit players. Uh, we played like some a, a series of matches, sort of like a you know. It wasn't exactly winner take all, but we we just played like a a league, so to speak, on on run at once poker, uh, fifty a hundred stakes, and yeah, I was I don't know I I felt like I was really prepared. I felt like I was playing well, and then I just got hit with the deck too. I was super lucky, pretty much in every match. Um, I think especially against my friend Bjorn, but also like in the in the finals against uh, against Polly, I. I believe like with a hundred hands left, I was down three buy-ins and got it all in as like a 90-10 dog. 
and got there. <laughs> and uh, so That's that was nice. nice. Yeah. So that, that kind of propelled me towards, you know, the, the, uh, well, I guess the literal and figurative crown, but uh, yeah, yeah, we shipped it. That was cool. Congrats, man. You had uh, five top flight professionals and then Fedor Holtz. He's the, he's, he's the, the fish of the group. No, <laughs> Fedor played. I mean, that's funny. That was like sort of how, how it was like not marketed, but like that was the perception. And I mean, he was like, he's tough. I mean, and then he, I don't know if, if anyone watched the uh, more recent like GG match that he, he played against limitless a bit. Like, I mean, everyone makes mistakes, but like for someone who never specialized in heads up and someone who's just like kind of taking a shot in the dark, like he plays really well. I mean, it's Fedor Holtz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do people like, expect? Like, you're not, yeah, you're not just like reeling in a live one here. Like, this is someone who's going to like understand what you're going for, like, understand the mechanics and just like try to be good, like, try to be a pain in the ass. And, and that's exactly what he did for the most part. Uh, that was my worst session, I think, was against Fedor. And that I, I got, I got smashed in that one. Four or five buy-ins. Yeah. I mean, a, a killer is a killer. And when you've been in poker, you understand the theory. You're as smart as Fedor Holtz. Like my assumption is whatever game he tries to play, he's going to get really good at it really, really fast. Like to the top, like, you know, 0.1%. Now, is he going to be like world-class heads up PLO and be able to battle like the specialist? Probably not. Unless he devoted like years to it. In which case my money's on Fedor. I think in any poker format, my money's on Fedor. If he spends a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah. All right, so what else have you been up to uh, outside of the Heads Up Challenge that you took down? Yeah, so I guess probably two main things that have taken up um, most of my focus since then. Like for my for my own play, I've been focusing on tournaments online. Um, so that probably would have led, like the end of that Heads Up Challenge would have led pretty much straight into like W Coop time of year. And then like over the winter we had, I mean, there's just been a lot of online tournaments, you know, throughout uh, I've heard. pandemic times, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of been the norm. So yeah, I did like for my, for my own play, I devoted a lot of energy to, to that, to getting good at that, um, to trying to play like full schedules and, and sort of really be like, I say this as if I'm not a full-time poker player, which is like kind of true, um, but like really trying to dive in and be like a full-time tournament professional uh which is hard and it's it's presented its own challenges but that that's been a good chunk of my time um and then the other side is coaching i I just have some what's so hard about it what's so hard about the full-time mtt pro well (laughs) i mean what there's a lot of things that are hard so i guess for me the hard thing the hardest thing in terms of preparation is like the complexity of the game means that I pretty much cannot be as accurate as I'm used to being in in cash format. Like in in heads of cash, for example, when I study, I'm studying like serious details, right? Like I'm there, there's a lot of variables that are constant in the cash game environment, which means that I can construct my ranges in a really accurate way. I can I can focus on good bat sizes at every single node with really high accuracy, and I can get into like the detailed heuristics of like how things work in in a line that doesn't come up all that often. 
and in tournaments like when i try like na my natural like state for studying is like trying to grasp at those details but i'm just like getting pre-flop ranges wrong and i'm like missing like range c bets at 20 big blinds deep and it and it's just like there's just so many well i don't know if it's frustrating it's just like it's it's different like the way that i used to learn the game doesn't doesn't work in in tournament format and i need to spend way more time on like macro view thinking about okay like i need to learn all the most common spots to a fairly proficient level before i can like engage the the curiosity that i have about like the details of of little spots cuz there's just no edges there right so i'm i'm sort of like yeah i'm sort of like coaching myself to be better at learning this new game um because i know this like as a coach i understand how people get bogged down in details but like that used to work for me in the other game format and it just doesn't work in in tournaments at least not yet like maybe 5 years from now that's what i'll be studying but it's it's not today well, were you studying the like precise fine details when you first started playing poker? Probably not. No. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> why why is this any different, right? Like, it's like big concepts, well, I, and yeah, you, you've been doing one thing for like it's it's a been long a long time. Yeah. So, like, for anyone who's not familiar with me, like, I I started learning Heads of No Limit in 2010, and I basically continued to play it almost full time until like 2018. So for like <laughs> For many, many years, I was building layers of strategy on the same format. So it was very, yeah. So it became natural to get into those details. But you're right. Like, it's no different from how I learned the game probably a decade ago. But it's, I mean, that's a decade ago. It's been a while. Yeah, it feels different. It feels like, oh, yeah. how, how am I not doing these things that ought to be automatic? And yeah. I also get the frustration aspect of like not being able to dive into your curiosity and like the finer details of things where you can, you know, find some edges that other people are missing. And that like, that's exciting to me. Like that, to, that yeah. part of poker is like the part of poker that drives me. And then like the, yeah, like you said, the macro stuff of like, ugh, I, I don't have my preflop ranges memorized. Like that's just, yeah. you know, it's just like a, a thing that you've got to do, but we don't really want to do it. <laughs> we don't look yeah. forward to memorizing pre-flop ranges. Yeah, like like in so in uh, in April, I played a full scoop schedule, and I had like notes to myself that you know every morning I'm supposed to uh, go on to like the pre-flop range viewer, and I'm supposed to drill like like I made note maybe the previous day or like at the end of the previous week, like hey these spots were giving me trouble, like I wasn't sure about my ranges in these spots, so I gave myself notes for the following week to like open that up pre-session but then i'm also trying to like get a good night's sleep and i'm trying to you know do yoga and i'm trying to to eat clean or maybe like fast through the day and and it just it was all these like little things that i didn't like my my curious brain was like oh, i don't want to do this <laughs> uh and and i kind of just had to like i mean i i think i developed like some or maybe like one or two good habits and i would and ideally i would have like six or seven of them uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll apply my discipline gradually, I guess. And maybe, maybe three, three or four scoops from now, I'll have all that stuff in a row. You just got to get one of your friends who's also getting into tournaments and just have an accountability show up at this time. Oh, We're yeah. going to quiz each other back and forth. And then like yoga doesn't matter. You, you have to show up for your friend, you know, that that's like a huge driver, um, that social accountability. Yeah. 
I'm the same way though. Like if something's like, ugh, I'm like, ah, I should do this, but there's so many other things that are <laughs> much more fun or that I feel like are also well, hard, like they're of all equal, important. Im equally important. Right. Yeah. That, that's what makes it hard is they're all important. Right. Um, but I think like, like I suggested before, like if I was, co if I was coaching myself, which I guess I kind of am, I would tell myself like, Hey, your, your, your baseline is to like lean into these tasks and ignore those other ones. And those other ones are actually higher priority. Like they're, they are, these are the types of mistakes you're making sort of at the table, like too often, not, not that often. Like these aren't, I'm, I'm making it sound like I'm just like free flop. <laughs> just giving um, it away. Yeah. I just have like, I have some inaccuracies that I wouldn't have if I was playing tournaments for the last five years. Right. Um, so I'm trying to like fast track those parts where I just get like the very, you know, the common important spots, just they become automatic and they're not quite, they're almost automatic, but they're not quite there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, Oftentimes, I think the thing that we procrastinate doing over and over and over again is like the thing that most needs to be done. Yeah. Um, and we know that like in our heart, but for some reason, we still just keep procrastinating. And it, it, like it happens to me all the time. Like I have things that I'm like, I need to do this. I need to like really dive deep into like paid marketing. And I find myself not doing that just over and over and it's like okay like something's got to give eventually yeah. um and then whenever i do something that i've procrastinated forever it's like it feels so good it, it like it's like a weight off your shoulders you know that's yeah. been subconsciously dragging you down um yeah i feel that so here's a question that i'm i've come up with imagine there's a, a greatest hits collection for the best stories that you've accumulated in your career traveling around or sitting at home playing cards. Tell me a story that's on that greatest hits album. Mm. Doesn't have to be like a poker hand, you know, it could be travel story, degening it up, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You ask about a travel story. Like I, my mind goes to probably like one of the more ambitious poker related trips or like, or maybe just the most fun. I'm not sure, but I guess around this would have been like in the middle of my heads up cash career. I think it was the summer of 2014. Yeah, like late 2014. So I was, I had been living in Toronto for a couple of years already, but I wasn't, I didn't have like status in Canada. I was still sort of border hopping every three to six months and, and traveling and, and resetting my visa uh, in that way. So I had a friend, Tom, uh, another heads up player. And we made plans to uh, to relocate like outside of Canada for an extended period of time. We wanted to go to Asia or we wanted to go to um, New Zealand, Australia. So, uh, yeah, we just I mean, we just kind of did. <laughs> yeah, it was like I, I've done this with a lot of poker trips where it's like, oh, there's a tournament stop in Macau or there's a tournament stop like there's the Aussie millions and, and we'll go uh, we'll go play and it'll be like a working vacation sort of thing mm -hmm. um usually those working vacations are just like vacations and, <laughs> right, yeah. and they're not, not, not much work uh, <laughs> yeah more vacation i i find especially the shorter ones like if if i go somewhere for a week or two weeks and there's like one tournament that i want to play like it, let's be real like it's a vacation right I've, I've done that enough times where i know that work doesn't end up being the focus i think the cool thing about this trip was the time frame was like six months so because the time frame was like six months, 
we, we did work. I mean, we like established, we had like a home office in Auckland for three months. We had like a home office in Sydney for three months. Um, but I don't remember to, like, so the work part, I guess, made it viable financially to like just be on the road for six or seven months. But like, it wasn't so much the, you know, the tournament stops, like the Aussie millions or whatever, like uh, that, that part at the time was not really the work for me. Um, but that was really cool. Like that, I, I just, you know, found myself in a completely different place for a long time. And because we had like a permanent setup while we were there, we were able to take like a dedicated vacation in the middle of that. We had a few other friends like fly out in January to meet us and we rented a, an RV and just like drove New Zealand for, for four weeks. And that was oh, just wow. like, that was just like the most incredible trip which would not have been made possible had we not essentially like funded it by just like showing up and working for two months straight, you know, out of a, out of an Airbnb, well, what probably wasn't Airbnb at the time, but working out of Auckland and then like, 2014 Airbnb has been around for six years. Hasn't it? I'm not sure. I, I, I want to say <laughs> it I would have like it on has. like, I feel like that was like the Verbo years, like the, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember how we booked it, but it might have been actually might have been Airbnb at least at least the second one that we rented but but yeah just I mean incredible trip like completely funded by poker and like sort of encouraged by poker I could tell like the the Gen stories and like the the sort of like I don't know re- recklessness was not really like my I don't know that that's usually not my story although some of the friends that we had on that trip were like, could not resist gambling the entire, I don't know if you've been on many like long poker vacations, but like people <laughs> just gamble on everything. Like it, it it's never really been like my, I, I don't get that much energy or like excitement out of it, but I had friends who were just like, they're, they're gambling for five, six figures for some reason, like in the back of a van while I'm driving through like, you know, literally the Lord of the Rings landscape <laughs> or something like, yeah, like you really don't want to miss this. And it's like, okay, okay, hold on. Like one more game of big two or something like, <laughs> it's, come on. Uh, but yeah, that was, I mean, that just an overall incredible trip. Uh, it's the one that I remember most fondly, I would say. Yeah. It sounds, sounds amazing. And like, I've noticed this too, that like you plan to work, have a you know a working vacation why do you think the work never really manifests i mean because i think that's not really why you wanted to be there in the first place right i mean the whole the whole appeal of the working vacation is the vacation like the (laughs) (laughs) like i didn't go there to just like find a new you know four-walled room to put my laptop in and and study the appeal is like to get outside and take in culture and i don't know experience new things yeah. So I I do think that the longer time frame though makes it like like this is even what I what I've sort of landed on for like playing live tournaments uh, as as close as like in the U.S. When I traveled to the U.S. in early 2020, I was making a point to like just stay places longer, like those two day trips or those three day trips to play one tournament. It was just I would I would both hate it and it would also not be that financially beneficial to schedule it so tight because it's like flights in both directions hotels it's hard to outrun that to play one tournament right yeah or like to play two tournaments i was finding that like a longer stay like like going to florida in january and staying three weeks and playing cash every day and playing eight tournaments or ten tournaments or something and there's still time to like 
go out in Miami and there's still time to go to the beach. And there's, you know, you know, like that, that longer time horizon, um, I think is something I've learned makes the working vacation actually like functional on both sides. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've taken, I can't count how many like week long trips and I'm like, I'm going to do some work on the trip and then, or I'm going to read this book that I've been meaning to read. That's like not fiction. <laughs> it's like a self-improvement performance, yeah. all that stuff. And I, I never open it. I never open my laptop. I never do any of the things that I planned on doing. And like you said, the reality is like you're on vacation for a reason um, to get away from all that stuff so that you can like rest actively and then come back recharged. Right. Yeah. Cool. So when you were coming up in your poker career, when you first decided to make the jump, who's the biggest influence into you becoming a poker professional? I mean, it's hard to, to nail down one person, to be honest. Um, I can think of like a couple major influences. I would, I would say like, I mean, when I was quite a bit younger, like when I was still in, in high school or like early in college, I think it was just like my close friends or my roommates, like my friend Dan in high school or like my roommate Henry in, in college, like these guys, I guess because they were also kind of in it and doing it, they just kind of gave me that like reinforcement and confidence that said like, oh, this is viable, right? Like this isn't just me alone, like trying some fringe game that, that probably isn't going to work out. Like there's other humans that are doing the exact same thing and we're all seemingly intelligent. So like, there's got to be something here. So I think that was like early reinforcement that, that made me confident about that. And that, that continued to build, like as my network started to build. I mean, I guess the other thing is just like my parents, not like <laughs> slamming the door and saying like, hell no, you can't do that. Like that surprisingly, um, yeah, they were like surprisingly on board, I guess is what I'll say for like, like in the middle of university, I just like took a quarter off and went to Vegas and they were just like, okay. <laughs> and then like at the end of university, I didn't apply for jobs and I was just like, Hey, I'm going to move to Toronto and play poker. And they're just like, okay. <laughs> like at no point was there just like a hard, like, you know, are you thinking about this properly? There was just like that implicit trust. And I, I, I want to give that a lot of credit. Cause I didn't have like that one. I didn't have like a key coach or like a, like a mentor that like brought me through the ranks or anything. I had sort of like more of a, a wider network. And I, I think I've talked before about how important they were to me, just accelerating growth and being around people in a, in a learning environment. That was huge. Um, but not like one specific person, right? I mean, I can name 15 or 20 people um, who were all really key for that. I mean, parents are wiser than we give them credit for, especially <laughs> when we're like 20 years old, right? Like they kind of, I think that they kind of see what's going on and they're like, okay, this is an opportunity for Kevin to take a quarter off and go have an experience and then come back. Yeah. And like, he may not get that opportunity in the future. And like, he's young. So young people are allowed to take more risks in the world because quite frankly, they have less to lose. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not everyone sees it that way though. Like not every, you know, like the, I had a lot of friends who just like committed down a path, like super early. I mean, I was at competitive school, so like a lot of doctor friends. Right. And like when you're, if you, if they're, I mean, a lot of them are doctors now, but if they're doctors now, that means like 15 years ago, they decided like firm, like, yeah, I'm just going to be a doctor. That's my life. Uh, which is pretty like, to me, it's like pretty scary to not really have that option to pivot. 
It's insane to me. It feels like terrifying. Yeah. Because like, what if you make it and you're like, hate it and you're like, oh, you're just stuck. You're, you're stuck in the golden cage probably forever. Yeah. I do think that there's like, I, I, I think this is sort of just like the internet gig era, right? Like even doctors are finding ways to like kind of move move out of the traditional path and like kind of do their own thing. I'm sure like, you know, there's lawyers and whatever other like long-term career path doing the same thing. Um, but it is way easier in our industry, obviously, because we never really committed firmly to like something in particular. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, we gave ourselves maximum flexibility there. Right. Loose commitments all around. Yeah. Um, I can't tell you how many people that I know, friends, acquaintances that became teachers that went to school to become a teacher that hated it and quit before one semester was finished. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the sort of assembly line and teaching people to pass standardized tests type situation is like not real learning. It's not engaging right. curiosity or creativity. And like when you realize, oh, I'm not really doing very much, we could just, they could just put automated videos in front of all the kids and be like, okay, here's what you do. Why, why do we even need teachers if they're just yeah. going to be like little robots? Yeah. Um, did, it, did any of them end up like mo- moving into like online learning or some other kind of like learning project? Not to my knowledge. Yeah. Uh, they kind of were just over the whole teaching experience and they're right. like, yeah, I don't, we can't, there's, there's, it's not about like personal relationships. It's not about like genuinely helping these kids. It's, it's not about coaching up their strengths. And they were just like, I, I don't like it. It's not what I signed up for. It's not what I'm passionate about. And so they just quit. Um, right. which is pretty reasonable to me, to be honest. All right. So what would you say is your poker superpower? Superpower. Um, I mean, something, something I've always found come easy or easy ish to me is you hear a lot about someone saying that they like got inside of their opponent's head. I, I, I do feel because I've sort of been like entrenched in learning and, and, and kind of collaborating with other people on the learning process. I think I have a very strong insight into how people do think like how how they think about their strategy and, and that whole, I mean, it, it does sound cheesy to, to say that you're like inside of your opponent's head, but I, I often find myself sort of like, simulating my opponent's like strategic thought and as a result like i mean that is literally what i'm describing i guess is like being inside of their head that's that's come that's come fairly natural to me so i think i would i would describe that more as a superpower than like something else that's that's more of a learned skill uh that's that's something i use a lot actually i think that it is kind of kind of a learned skill in that like you know you mentioned before how you layer strategies on top of each other and you you've nailed down the precision. Well, like when you encounter somebody, basically what you're doing is you're constructing their strategies and you're look, you're constructing their strategies mentally. And then you're trying to find the holes and find the places where you can find an edge. Right. And like you find somebody that's like on a layer that's three above you that you've experienced and you understand because you've studied it, then it, it's like, okay, like I, I can map out what this player's thinking or what they're doing, how they're constructing their strategies, and then really finding the, uh, you know, 
the edges. And, you know, I, I've said it before, but a lot of the edge in poker is like knowing your opponent's strategies better than they know them themselves. Um, yeah. Especially like as it relates to lower level players, like they don't really know what they're doing. But a higher level player knows what they're doing, how they're constructing their strategies, where the holes are, and then they target those strategies very specifically. So like, yeah, that yeah. makes a ton of sense to me. Like being in somebody's head, it's more like you just, you know how they're playing the game. And because you know how they're playing the game, you know all the perfect counters. I mean, I think it's also like, like it's a bit of empathy too, because I can see a player at like whatever stage they're at, like whatever level they're at. I can think back and think like, oh yeah, I used to play like this and it caused these problems, right? Like, oh, I used to, I used to have this like upfront aggressive strategy that, that wasn't protecting my check range and here's how it went wrong. And here's all the things that I fixed. And now I know at the counter. So that's like, yeah, it, it is kind of what you're saying. Like it's, it's a matter of having like broken down that flawed strategy at some point earlier in my career and then recognized that like they're still sitting in that a little bit or or maybe part of their game is still at that place um so i already know what's what's wrong with that strategy and i think one thing that's you mentioned empathy because i think that is very important part of this equation something that's kind of odd that has happened to me like what too many too many times to count is like you sometimes you just get a sense that somebody's about to do something ridiculous and I don't know where that sense comes from. They could have not played a hand for two hours straight. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, they're about to go off. Like, yeah. I don't know why I, I, I sense that. that. I, I get that like, all the time. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't I can't describe it really. But it's like, I just know. I know that they're about to just go off like a rocket for some reason. And then they just do. And it's like yeah. very, it's very bizarre. It's It's funny how much of like human nature is just like scripted, right? Like there's everyone who plays poker or any, or any competitive game, like they're driven by the same sort of motivations. They, they experience the same emotions. Yeah. And I think just when you've been in it for, for so long and you've seen kind of that happen, like you've seen someone go off the rails and you know, like what it looks like and you know why it happens and what triggers it. Like it's, it's intuition now, right? Like you're, <laughs> you're just kind of reminded Cause I, I experience this all the time. I mean, more accurately in a heads up environment for sure. But that's just because I have more repetitions there, I guess. Yeah. But you can just tell. You can just you can just feel like someone's emotional state. Like if they're fed up, if they've if they've been unlucky in a certain way to the point where it's going to cause them to do something. Uh, you know, maybe the the signs were there in the way they played other hands. Like they they just they showed small little you know trigger cracks. warning sort of yeah, <laughs> yeah the cracks are forming like little little mistakes lead to bigger ones. Yeah, it's a little it's bit all longer just the delays. same script. Yeah, a little bit longer delays. Like their their posture changes, their facial expression is a little bit different, and you're like, hmm, something's brewing over there. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's really cool, and it's yeah, I think that like like you said, it's reps and scripted. I love that. That's a greatness bomb. That like it's just it's like a script in a movie that's playing over and over and over again. Um, yeah. Plus, I mean, when I was like in the first probably four or five years of my own poker career, I think that I started to gain an awareness when I was about to go off like a rocket because that was a thing that like would regularly happen. I, I would leave the tables and like walk back to my hotel room or whatever, just like scratching my head. Like, why did I do that again? Like, 
again? Like, what is wrong <laughs> with me? Right. Um, so yeah, I guess it's that's part of it too. Is like I've been through it. I know what it yeah. feels like. I know what it looks like, and then yeah. so I can spot it. So this is a, a question that doesn't have to be taken literally. When you think of Nemesis in your poker career, who's the first person that comes to mind? And what I mean by that is like, you know, just somebody that just gets the better of you like over and over and over again. And it could just be like, obviously the deck hits them in the head every single time they're playing against you. Yeah, there's, I mean, there, there was, there was a name that came to mind, but I think, I think more. So, you know, when you say nemesis, I'm thinking heads up battles, obviously, I think perhaps like more impactful on my on my career that i that i remember like um was was this like anonymous opponent that i that i played many years ago i assume it was one opponent i mean it it could have been multiple people but i used to play on a network called micro gaming i think they're still around I'm, i'm not really sure um and they were more like the it was like a european market so uh i guess early in my I'm playing from Canada, you know, some of the sites were still more of like a, like a North American focused market and, and other ones like, like micro game were more of like the European market. So I was, I was playing against, I want to say it was like two, four and three, six Euro stakes. And this was at the time, like not even, I think it was probably like a below average limit for me. It was like I was probably playing average buy-in one k, and this was on, and and I was playing like two four and three six, on this site, and I just got I got ran over by this like same anonymous player over a stretch of like ten or fifteen or twenty thousand hands for like twenty k or twenty five k or something like that. So like a lot a lot of buy-ins, like thirty or forty buy-ins. And I don't know who it was, and I don't think I ever played them on a different network. And like that <laughs> sort of ate away at me, I think. Yeah, <laughs> just like I could see that. So just, dude just comes out of the dark and smashes you, and you never see him again. Well, it, and it's and it's just like the psychological impact of this too, right? Like I think I think at that point, I mean, the reason I bring this up is because I think it it touches on like sort of the the mental game difficulty I have I've had a lot, um, which is sort of like entitlement, because. This player, in my mind, was like definitively worse than me because they played on like a softer site. They played lower stakes and I didn't know who they were. Like I didn't have like a name to attach to them to justify. It's not like I like dug through and I found out like, oh, oh, they're, you know, they're staked by Doug Polk or something like, oh, of course. Like, Oh, it's Cole South messing around. (laughs) Yeah, there was no like there was no connection that like eased that tension that told me like, oh, it's okay, They're better than you. Um, so in my mind, it was like this, this battle of they are bad and I should be winning and I'm getting crushed. And I, and that was, yeah, that was hard for me. So that sticks in my mind a lot. And I guess like the takeaway there, I mean, fast forward a few years, I think they were just playing a style that I wasn't good against. I think that's like the reality of it. I don't, I don't know if I was losing. I don't know if I was like breaking even whatever, like, you know, losing 30 buy-ins it, it happens, obviously, due to variance, but I do think that they were playing a style that happened to match up really, really well against my weaknesses at that time. And 
as a result, like, yeah, and it just took me like forever to recognize that as a mistake. Cause I think I was clouded. Like my judgment was sort of clouded in this way. That was like, they are definitively worse than me. Like I, I know it, I can guarantee it. And I just was wrong. Like I could not guarantee that. I, I think, can we call it not entitlement tilt and just like either arrogance or hubris? It's yeah. like, and I think it's very common, especially for like high level poker players to be like, no, I dismissed this out of hand without even investigating it because yeah. I am superior to you point blank. And I think that like the folks really, like you said, when you open up the possibility that maybe you have a weakness in their game, in your game, and they're just exploiting that weakness or their style matches up really well against you, then you're able to resolve those weaknesses and be a much stronger poker player. So like, yeah, yeah. the, we, we poker players just, and I guess we kind of have to have a lot of self-confidence and self-belief, um, to, you know, suit up and lose 30 buy-ins and be like, yeah, we're going to keep going. This is, this is okay. Like we, we still got things figured out, but, uh, yeah, I think that like the earlier, the er earlier that, you know, the listener in the audience opens themselves up to the possibility that maybe you're just not playing as well as you think you are, and maybe you still have a lot of room to grow, then you open yourself up for that growth to become a stronger, more competent, better poker player. And I, I think this was like, perhaps even easier for me to spot because it was heads up, because in heads up, you do encounter like a wide variety of opponents. And there's, and there's no other way to make money other than to like dissect their strategy and beat it, right? Like there's mm -hmm. no, you play in like a, an eight-handed game in Vegas and one player is unusual to you and like one player at the table, you know, matches up well against you and gets the best of you. It might just not even matter. Like you might just be doing fine against the other six and you just never notice it and it never like tips you off, right? So I think I was, I was lucky in that sense. Like my requirement to adapt was like there was more pressure on that and it was like kind of faster moving i mean this was you know it probably took me two or three years even to to realize my mistakes but i could easily see that just going like a lifetime without being noticed if it was if it was in a different game environment yeah it, you you say that it, it's very funny because one struggle that I have, so I've made a bunch of courses that specifically target fish using mass data analysis and looking at the holes in their game for mass to massively exploit them. And what's funny is like the people that I have the that that are are the hardest to sell to are the high level players that would benefit the most from the material because in their minds, oh, they're weak players. I already beat them, right? But they don't follow yeah. that question up with, could I beat them for more? Am I yeah. maximizing value here against these very specific players? And so like, I, it, it just strikes me as like hilarious that I've made these courses that are like, for somebody that's playing, you know, 1K and L are nothing. And people are like, nah, I don't even want to look at it. I don't care. I don't want to check it out. I'm like, okay. <laughs> One specific dude in the group, um, I badgered him. Like, I, I mean, I, I badgered him because we're like, we're close. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Like, just here, it's $400. Just buy it. Check it out. See what happens. Like you play 2K and L. What's the worst that fucking happens? Like you understand pot odds, right? Like this is a pot odd situation here. He bought it. I checked in on him like three hours later. He's like, oh, it's already paid for itself. <laughs> like <laughs> Four days later, he's like, he's like, oh, this is the most valuable, highest ROI thing that I've bought since Pio Solver. And I'm like, man, I told you. But like it yeah. took 
everything in me. Like, and he's close to me. So like I felt comfortable badgering him. But most people are like, yeah, no, I do well. I don't care. I don't want to look at it. And I, it just boggle. It, it just I'm dumbfounded by that. Um, yeah. But I think ultimately it just boils down to like arrogance and hubris of like, yeah, I'm just I'm really good at these playing against these guys. You know, uh, there was like a he, he told me that there's a run. There's a run at once video where somebody used sizings that I know are inefficient. And they're like, ah, fish is inflexible with their continuing range. Like six times in a row, the fish just folds the river. <laughs> it's like, at what, how many times do they need to fold in a row to realize that maybe they're not inflexible with their river calling range? Yeah. Um, anyway, that's just like a, a thing that I've, I've been dealing with personally that I think is like, it's just really a hilarious problem to have. Um, but, but it's, it, it's it very back common. to, yeah. It is. Like it, it's, I, I run across like a lot of my students will not, will not view a, a amateur opponent or a fish opponent as like a thinking strategic opportunity, like as an opportunity to build a strategy that exploits them. They just, they just think like, oh yeah, like they're bad. So the money just arrives in my account. Right. Uh, and, like it's, the and it's just not people. true. They're the easiest ones. Like, of course you win, right? It's not about winning because of yeah. course you win. It's about winning the max. And yeah. that's what people miss. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's like, of course they're thinking human beings and like they all, they all act shockingly similar. And um, they're not in like a fish chat room somewhere developing their <laughs> strategies together, right? So like, yeah. um, this is just like really instinctual human beings, how they perform when they're in an environment that they're not used to. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's a, I just think that like arrogance, hubris, all these things really hold people back from realizing their full potential. And like you said, you know, thankfully, you know, you were a strong player that was still making a living and still beating the game. But like, if you weren't and yeah. you weren't able to look in the mirror, your poker career is done. We're not having this conversation right now. It's true. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your pre-flop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your pre-flop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. Yeah, before bootcamp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years. Somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site. Kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And Preflop Bootcamp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to, to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in Bootcamp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what rangers should look like and what hands should be played in what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I, I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. 
And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's、um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that that was fun. That's、uh, pushing each other and really helping、uh, one another. Kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was、uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post boot camp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always. Being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up,、um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of of a solid poker game. And、uh, since boot camp, I've been able to to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and、uh, re- really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have seventy thousand hands played by now. You know, I'm. A father, and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month, and your link to join is ChasingPokerGreatness.com/bootcamp. One more time. That's chasingpokergreatness.com/bootcamp, all one word. Or you can click through in the description box of this episode. Okay, back to back to my questions.、Uh, when you think about favorite sessions ever, what's the first one that comes to mind? So there was, so there was one. I mean, this is gonna <laughs> this is gonna sound shitty because this is like the type of online session that was like you know it's it's like folklore at this point because it never happens anymore. <laughs>、um, but there was a session. It was actually on that trip that I was describing earlier、um, when I was living out in New Zealand. And so the way that the at the time when you played on party poker, heads up. The way the lobby worked was there was a fixed number of tables、uh, that would ever exist. Not like not like the number that would display at a time, but like a a lobby maximum. So if you if said 18, party poker, party poker, yeah. Oh yeah, that I like. I remember that from two thousand five. There were two thirty sixty tables every day. I would wake up at four in the morning, or maybe go to sleep at four in the morning. I guess this is two thousand five. Put my name on the list. There's like sixty people on the list. And just hope to not oversleep it. Like hope to like wake up and be like fifth on the list. I mean, it's hilarious how they、yeah. just had like static. Oh, we got two tables. Okay, best of luck, it's guys. Like, it's like if you had to like phone in to the Vegas like poker room like before you boarded your flight to go to Vegas. Like, <laughs> right. Like because if you got if you were already there, you were too late to get a seat. <laughs> yeah, but it it shows sort of like how preposterous it was because like. You've got sixty people on the list, so like you can、yeah. spread so many games and make so much more money. And for some reason, you just don't.、Uh, okay. I mean, I like I don't know if this was a literal like server space limitation. I don't know. Regardless of why they had it in place, there would never be more than eighteen heads up tables, and one person could open sixteen for, them, <laughs> for themselves. Yeah. So. Uh, so, so like on the New Zealand time zone, like me and my friend Tom, who I was there with, like we were just the only two regs. Like we just, like there were no other 
player. Well, I mean, other players would would fight obviously for tables, but the idea was like the the lobby was ours because um, nobody else could sit unless they wanted to play us. Um, so the, so at so at one point in that trip, and I think it was around New Year's. I remember in those years, like the Christmas holiday to New Year's was just incredible action. And it was always my biggest winning month was December. Uh, so that particular New Year's, like this this guy started sitting, one of us, it wasn't always the same, but this this guy started joining who his like, his entire strategy was to, to fold 0% before the river. He was always, he was always there on the flop. He was always there on the turn. And then he would like make his decision on the river essentially. And we realized this like pretty early on that he was just completely inflexible to, to sizing. So like there would be sessions where we would just like, I would take on a strategy of like limp, go to the flop. If I make top pair bet 20 X the pot, <laughs> like if I, if I make any pair really just bet 20 X the pot. So like stacks are flying in these sessions. So every time this guy sits stacks are flying. It was like the most fun because of like the strategy he was choosing. It was just like the most like just emotionally enjoyable sessions to play. Like, and I guess it wasn't, it was five ten, which was like kind of average stake for me at the time. So it wasn't like stressful or anything, but like money would just fly during these sessions. And there was one session that he was stuck a lot and it just got to the point where he like, he just wanted to flip and like as a heads up player, like that was honestly it was good for business, I guess is what I'll say. Um, so we just like got to the point where like we were just all in like every second hand for hours and hours. He, you know, at one point we played like a 20K pot at 510. Um, because you're not like resetting stacks. So no, it's just one table. Like we're just, we're just all the money's on the table. He just keeps like <laughs> he lose a thousand snap reload, lose a thousand snap reload. So it's just like the most action filled session. When the 20K flip? Um, I did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I won a lot from this player. Um, no shit <laughs> more, more than you should in a five ten game. Yeah. I can but the funny, <laughs> the funniest part that I remember is that at, like when he, this, this wasn't just on one day, by the way, this was like over the course of a week, he would like come back like day after day. We were like clearing our schedule. Like I forget his screen name, but you know, it was just like, oh yeah, like this, you know, these are the hours that this guy sits like you have to play he started chatting with me because I, I guess he was like, I, I don't know, like we're repeat customers here. Like we're now like sort of table mates. He was chatting with me and he starts saying like, Hey, I think the software is rigged. Uh, 90 <laughs> I've been tracking my all ins. Like I've lost 16 out of 17 or something like this, like ni- 92%. It's getting ridiculous. Uh, and, and then he later in the, in the session, like, I guess I was giving good action. He, he says, um, uh, thanks for the game. By the way, this other player, uh, and, and I forget the screen name, but he's like, this other player I think is cheating. I think he's, he's staked by the house. You should avoid him. And it was my roommate, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> the only two players, like, <laughs> it's obviously going to be one. <laughs> he was, like, giving me tips. He was like, hey, hey man, like, be, be careful out here. Like, this, <laughs> you don't want to lose your money to this guy. <laughs> so See, that man- was... That's your greatest hit story right there. That was yeah. it. That that yeah. is freaking awesome. Did he? Have, I I know this is like a a dumb question, but I can't imagine he him ever beating you in a session. You know, I think he had a winning session. I think he yeah. 
I think he had one. I mean, the way I described that one where he's just all in every second hand, it wasn't always like that, right? It, it was a bit like he's an action player and it took time for me to recognize like what kind of things would be like the best, right? Like the best possible strategy. By the end, I mean, he was he was losing massively, but I'm sure there were a couple sessions early on where he left with four or five K. Um, yeah, he wasn't, it wasn't always leaving with nothing. Yeah, I mean, to tie back into what we were talking about earlier, you need a time to map out what the hell this guy is doing. And then once you mapped it out, you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> I, I see now. Let's just limp in yeah. 20x when... I mean, it I takes, flop. yeah, it takes a while to get to the point where you're testing 20x flopsy bets. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not exactly in my, like, you know, top three tips for, like, ways to exploit. Like, it, it just, yeah, it doesn't immediately come to mind. There was a lot of trial and error there. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't just like, oh, I'm just going to do this and it's going to win. No, you, you tried yeah. a bunch of different things and eventually landed on the 20X. Um, yeah. So on the flip side of that, do you have any memories of a least favorite poker session? You know, I've always been someone, I mean, I'm sure I can think of something, but but just generally, like, I've I've always been sort of like a quit your session early type of type of player. And... I mean, maybe this is fortunate or maybe this was just like a good um, mental game decision that I made early on. But like I have almost never like gone off for like 10, 15, 20 buy ins. Like I, I really can't remember a single time. Well, it doesn't have um, to be like losing. It could just be like a god awful trip that you took to some place. Yeah, that's true. I mean, actually, yeah, something comes to mind. <laughs> it was pretty recent, actually. I mean, the, the way that you said that reminded me of the Niagara Poker Room. Um, and, and the last time that I played in, uh, Casino Niagara would have been like February, 2020. Uh, we had probably like the biggest cash game that, I mean, that I've ever played there. Um, and I just lost like every, basically every major pot that I got involved in, I lost. Um, I remember looking back at my records recently cause it was tax season in April and uh yeah and i just had like i probably played like 10 cash sessions or something and it was like nine sessions where i lost a buy-in or greater and like one session where i broke even <laughs> or something like that it was it was atrocious um yeah that was not a good that was not a good trip and that was hard for a number of reasons i guess but but i think the main reason is that like the, those games are very rare like there's a there's a wpt at fallsview uh every what time of year do they run that? I guess it would be every February. What yeah. was the game? What was the stakes you were playing? Uh, we were playing 100, 200 Canadian dollar, no limit. A lot of it was 50, 100 with a straddle. Some of it was 1-2, just straight 1-2. Uh, but probably the, I mean, the game we were starting most mornings, I guess, was twenty five fifty, which then eventually we got a big enough crowd that there would be two tables and maybe one of them would put on the 100, but... By the end of the week, like we we had to move back to the to the Casino Niagara poker room because when the WPT comes, we play in like the Falls View uh, convention area downstairs. It's massive. There's like a ton of tables. Um, but when the WPT is over, that rental finishes, and then they move the cash games to the other casino, uh, which is just like this dark room hidden behind all the slot machines next to like a sports bar or whatever. Um, so there's like way fewer tables. But I guess at that point, like people were. We were only in town for one or two more days, so they wanted to kick up the stakes. So uh, we had two tables of 100, 200 for like two days straight 
or maybe it was maybe it was just one long day. Can't really remember. But yeah, I got whacked. It was not it was not fun. I just remember it being like a very defeating session because you know they were well above average games, and you just know that there's like an end date to it. I think that's like the frustrating thing is you know like come Tuesday everyone's going home, and this game is just over. So you'd like there's this desire to like make the most of the session and then I just get stacked again. And then like, this is, you know, you want to like run your account back up and yeah, didn't happen. So that was, that was a rough one. Yeah. It's pretty brutal, especially when you have a limited time to play in the game. I know that, uh, I had Darren Elias on the show recently too, and he played, I can't remember. It was tell Was it high? I can't, I don't think it was high stakes poker. It was some televised thing. I saw the, a little reel on Instagram where like he, stacked Perkins and we talked about it and he's like, yeah, I gave it all back. He's like, I, <laughs> I gave it all back. I got smashed. And he said, basically pretty much verbatim what you just said of like, it's very rare that games that size run. And he typically has all of his own action when they run because he wants the opportunity. And if it doesn't work out, it can be fairly brutal. Um, but I guess that's poker, right? Yeah. What would you consider a weakness? that you have related to your poker game and then what steps have you taken to overcome said weakness besides not turn, not studying MTT preflop? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll see if I can think of something other than the sort of like entitlement um, discussion that we already had. Cause that, that is a big one. That's what I think about a lot. Um, what do you feel like? What do you, what goes through your mind when like you get smashed by somebody regularly and you're like, I'm better than them. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a bit of like, I, I don't know if I want to call it confusion, but like it's, there's this disconnect, right? Like I, I get this sense of I've done, I, I guess I just want to say it's more, it, it's more like that feeling that you deserve to win. And when you're losing, there's like this, I don't even want to say when you're losing, actually what, what gets to me the most specifically is losing hands or losing situations in which I disagree with their strategy. So I, I think that's where like the biggest sort of like emotional triggers will come from. Not so much just like losing in a generic sense, like, you know, being stuck on the session or whatever. I, that, that very rarely gets to me. But I think what's, what's difficult is when like, I understand a spot a certain way. I understand the merits of playing in a certain way. I see like a different strategy being used by my opponent, which I disagree with. And then like that leads to them winning, right? Like there's a connection. And I think it's, you know, so it's this, it's simultaneously this feeling of like, they don't deserve to win that hand, but also like maybe a bit of doubt that says like, maybe I'm wrong about this strategy. Right. Um, so that's like a pretty nasty combination. I think like the, the combination of like, I've, I've lost to what I already, what I, what I previously thought was like an inferior strategy but now also I'm not sure if I'm good. <laughs> like now I'm also starting to like question if I believe what I was saying in the first place, which is that like, I'm the better player or like I have the better strategy. Um, that's, that's sort of the, yeah, I would say that's like the progression of thought that leads to sort of like, uh, I don't know that it really leads. I mean, that's just kind of where it stops, I guess. I don't know that it leads to anything in particular, but um, that's where the source of frustration is for sure. Yeah. When you were talking about that one, very visceral memory came to my mind. Uh, this was years back, but I was playing on one of those silly Asian apps, and 
it was just a, a fish pond. I mean, it was a table full of like 70 slash fours. And I played every day. I was like grinding hard. And they were beating the shit out of me every single day. And like, I kept telling myself, I don't know what's happening, but this is not right. Like, eventually you're going to win. And then like three weeks of losing, I, I would have like existential crisis. Like I'm like taking a, a shower at night, like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Like, have I just, did I get lucky in poker for like over a decade? Did I forget like everything I knew? Like, have I been wrong about all the theory and the strategy? And then it was like a full week of like existential melting down. And then one day, because like, again, this is arrogance. This is the hubris I was warning everybody about before I decided, well, fuck it. I'm going to look at my database and see what's happening. Pull up my database in five minutes, I realize, oh, they're super using. <laughs> like, it was like, oh, I'm getting scammed. This makes so much more sense to me now. <laughs> it was almost like a relief that I was getting scammed. Like, oh, thank you. I was going to say, I, I was going to say, you're describing a game that I stake someone for, I think. And like, he was getting cheated. So I hope, <laughs> I hope you found out that you were too. Yeah. Yeah. If it was on an app called High Poker, then they yeah. were getting cheated. Yeah, um, that's the one. Yeah, yep. there you go. So uh, I, uh, yeah, I ran the aliases and I was like, oh, these guys are winning at like 100 BBs per hundred and they only play yep. 900 hands. And then I grouped them all together and I was like, oh, they're one digit away from each other. I see yeah. what's going on. But yeah, it was like just super meltdown of like, what the fuck is happening? Like, I don't understand this. Um, yeah. But yeah, just uh, when it's legitimate, it's even more concerning <laughs> because like, you know, when it, when it, you're actually doubt, you know, that like, but the thing about poker is like, it's such a big game and variance is so huge. And like, even if your strategy is superior, right? Like how superior is it? And then yeah. how many samples do you really get um, over the course of like your lifetime against this player? And the answer is probably not enough to really, to really prove definitively one way or the other. So like, yeah, it's almost like a, it's a human thing. I think it's a human biology thing more than it is like a poker thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have seen this in like a number of different forums with either my own player with my students and, you know, it, it, it's sort of like, there's a pretty big disconnect between like how we feel about how well we're playing and how large our edges in, in just mathematical terms. Right. Yep. And, and there's like, it's it's very challenging even for me to like separate that emotional feeling of like oh i'm i'm theoretically better or like i understand the game better therefore i win and i play this style it has these mechanics to it they play this other style it has these mechanics to it bash those two styles against each other and like this much ev gets sent in this direction like because that's really what it is like we have this we have this like romantic version of of the game in our in our minds and it's not like it's not grounded in in expected value. It's not grounded in like math. It's just just how we feel about you know how how good we think we are. How, let me let me ask how you we feel they are. Yeah, yeah. So this is like a thing that I've been investigating a ton lately. I've been trying to come up with a metaphor for like how I view poker. You know what you said is like exactly how I view poker, right? Like you've got one set strategy, one strategic model over here, one strategic model over here. You smash them against each other for. 50,000 hands or however many hands and like one will win more money than the other. Right. And, and like, 
people don't see poker that way. And I've been trying to come up with like a good metaphor. And I was just wondering if you have come up with a good metaphor to be able to like describe the way that we see poker to the listener. Well, I mean, yeah, hopefully something comes. I mean, the, the way that I'm describing like the reality of poker is just the way that like a solver works, right? Like the reality of poker is you just, you take two strategies and you iterate them against each other, like over the true long run and just it spits out a number and it just tells you which one is doing better for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, the way that we actually think about poker is, is very qualitative. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's rooted in storytelling, right? Like it's, it's very much like we create a narrative and, and we use heuristics that other people have maybe told us at some random point, but um, (laughs) yes, (laughs) like we don't even know some of, I don't know, oftentimes like a heuristic comes to mind and I'm like, who said that? And like, why do I even think it's true? But yeah, I mean, the, the computer knows better, right? Like the computer knows nothing in, in terms of like language or, or, or narrative or stories. And it, and it just understands like what wins money. Um, it just knows the rules. <laughs> so, right. Like students will just ask me sometimes, or like people in my community, students, customers will be like, why does it, why does this, why does it want to do this? <laughs> why does the solver right. want to do this? And I'm like, so because it does, I guess is the first answer. Um, but secondarily, like, you know, is it because the player is like raising, like, you know, they, they want to create this narrative that helps make sense of this output, but like, there's no narrative there. Like there's no, we're not provided as coaches with like the exact why the solver is doing all the things we can extrapolate. We can hypothesize, we can theorize to make sense of it ourselves. But like, the reality is like all of those narratives and the heuristics are developed by human beings because the reality is like poker is just pure soup and math and like all of these crazy different little things that like yeah. are very hard for us to make sense of. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find that coming up a lot in my coaching sessions as well. And, and often times I'm just trying to do better than the previous time I tried at describing <laughs> what's going like, cause it's like you said, like the solver didn't tell me like it, it didn't whisper in my ear, like, Hey, the reason that I'm raising 4% <laughs> of the time with this combo is, you know, uh, he was eating, the, he was eating his Oreo funny. Like that, that's not how it <laughs> right. works. So exactly. The, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's difficult to separate the human element and the, and the mathematics of the game. Uh, I don't always try to, like, I do still try to explain things in like a human way or like make sense of structure in a human way. Because I do think that there's like understandable generalizations that you can make about solver output or about like the mechanics of the math of the game, but it's it's a little more mathematical than you know the previous generation of of poker strategy, right? Like it's there's a little more of just oh yeah, the solver does this because like it's worried about this counter that never happens, or it's worried or it's it's iterated. Solver's not worried. Kevin, yeah. but it, <laughs> solvers don't worry. <laughs> so you caught me there doing the human thing, but it's it it kind of works, right? Like um, something that comes to mind is uh, I was studying tournament final table, and if you look at tournament final table preflop solutions, the the output doesn't open limp, or it or it very very rarely chooses to open limp. But there are players at the highest stakes online right now who are open limping at at final tables. So the question comes up like, okay, are they just, 
are they just bad? <laughs> uh, Firstly, they no. <laughs> no, the answer is no. Yeah. Um, so why do they think that limping is, is good when the solver disagrees? So I think there's like two possibilities there. I think they either don't agree with like the fact that the solver output it means it's the best play. Um, so I mean like the fact that there's no limping in the solution, they might not agree with the solution. That's one possibility. Um, and then the other possibility is they've forced the limping strategy in a, in a closed solver environment and they've seen the response and they think that the response it, that, that actual humans take is, is very different from the response that the solver takes. Yep. Um, Bingo. And I think, and I think that's almost certainly what happened, right? So it's an exploitative tactic, right? It, it's, but the funny thing is like a lot of this stuff gets iterated out in the solution because it went through the process of trying limping and then the counter was really good. So then it dismissed it. Yeah. But like, but nobody it, knows the counter because nobody limps, <laughs> but that's not in the, right. So like, that's not in the output. Like the output doesn't tell you like, Hey, by the way, like, Two million iterations ago i was limping but it didn't work out and here's how it and here's what happened like the solver is not speaking to you mm-hmm. um but yeah like we like a bunch of players who are kind of of that mindset of exploitative tactic uh strategy building they just go and like they try stuff like they are the solver like they're they're like they're doing what the solver did and like not dismissing the idea that it might still be best uh in the current game environment so yeah this this is just like, it's just what came to mind with like the sort of like human elements that are lost when you just look at the like final solution. Uh, but they're still, I think, really important. Like they're still uh, extremely relevant to high level strategy. Oh, like a thousand percent. And yeah, to dive a little deeper into this and sort of explain it to the listener even more is like, I. I did something that was, I was just purely exploring curiosity because I was curious as to what happened um, if I like never raised preflop. Okay, so that was the premise of my thing. I'm never raising, I'm never three betting, I'm never four betting. And in my silly little brain, I thought, hmm, it's kind of weird because like I always have like over pairs advantage. Like my range is just so weird um, preflop that like I wonder how people are going to respond. And what I noticed was, especially limping from like under the gun, I would have regs like six Xing it from the cutoff with like King 10 off. And I'm like, I don't think that's good. Like if I were to open from under the gun, they would fold for 2.5 BBs King 10 off. And yet now I limp with the same exact range. Nothing's changed other than I'm not raising any of it. It's the same range. Now they're willing to put six big blinds in from the cutoff with the same hand they would have folded. Um, and that was like, oh, I, I kind of see like basically regs know what to do versus a 2.5 UTG open. They don't really know what to do when a good player limps from under the gun. They don't know the response. And when they don't know the response, like even if the limping strategy performs worse in like iteration number thousand in th- against the computer, well, it's going to perform better against a human that has no earthly idea and they're just kind of clicking buttons. Um, and that to me is like, that was sort of an eye-opening experience of like, yeah, sometimes you can give up a little bit of edge at some point when players don't know what on God's earth is happening and they've got to just like 
try to figure it out. And if you know what like the solver response looks like, and you can't imagine a world where a human being is going to respond in such a way, there might be an opportunity to find an edge there. Um, so yeah, yeah. it's a, and that to me is like at this stage of the game, 17 years in all of that stuff is like, that's the fun part of poker for me. That's like exploring, being curious, taking risk and like just trying, trying stuff out just to see like what happens. And I think those experiments to me are like really what keeps poker fresh. Um, yeah. Especially after all this time. Yeah, totally agree. What's a purchase you've made in the last year that's been impactful to your poker game? I'm going to shy away from saying my monitor. <laughs> Monitors um, and computers are like the number one answer. <laughs> yeah, that feels like that feels like a cop out. I mean, I've I've purchased a lot of training tools. I always purchase a lot of training tools, even if I don't use them very much. I find, well, it's just helpful to know what's on the market and how to use it and what other people are doing with it. Wondering if I can think of just like the best one that I, I mean, more recently, I guess was just upgrading my to to Pio two, which has been really valuable. But Pio was already very valuable. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, I mean, I'll just generalize a bit, right? Like my my kind of like investment in in new tools or like new training material. I think just like continues to pay off because what it lets me do is for my, for like the coaching side, it lets me first of all, like relate with all the players who are coming up through like different learning paths Mm. and like understand sort of the process they're going through and maybe the pitfalls that they might run into, or maybe like the strengths of that particular method. Um, so something that comes to mind is like all the different trainer tools that are on the market, like lucid GTO and there's, you know, Pio two has a built-in trainer and, uh, like vision for PLO on run at once, like all these sort of interactive solvers. And like, I don't want to say that my personal game has like skyrocketed because of using trainers, but like my understanding of how to improve at the game has skyrocketed, uh, because of trainers and, then there's like the value of, yeah, just like there's, you know, really powerful aggregated um, work that Pio2 can handle. Uh, it's a lot better at, or at least I find the interface is a lot better for like scripting and for, and for large. You're going to have to explain uh, these words, Kevin. Yeah. So, so the, so the aggregated work that I do on, on PioSolver is like, essentially I'm running a lot of different, flop scenarios, a lot of different like sims, individual sims, but I'm taking like the same parameters and just doing it for the whole group. So I'm trying to get like sort of generalized information that that maybe tells me, okay, what continuation bet size should I be using from under the gun against the big blind on all the different flops? What continuation bet size should I be using from the button against the big blind on all the different flops? And how is that, you know, um, how do those relate? Like, how are, how are those different from each other? What's the, what's, what's the same? And then I'll look at like, yeah, I mean, using six max as an example or cash games as an example, um, looking at all the different positional formations, all the different, you know, single raise pot, three bet pot, four bet pot, basically like trying to 
<laughs> trying to use a solver to teach me the entire game um, from from scratch is sort of how I frame it for for the people who I work with aggregated data on is like if I was if I was learning six max for the first time today, I would just like study some preflop charts, plug it into a bunch of aggregated data reports for all flops, all turns, and just have a solver tell me like, hey, here's how you play flops and turns, like in a very broad sense. So I, I use that just a ton. I mean, pretty much nonstop this whole year, I've been updating reports, chain, like tweaking variables, changing my scripts, kind of like updating that, and then just extracting the data so that I get you know more and more broad information on all the games that I'm trying to be really good at about you know heads of cash for six max cash for tournament um that's just yeah i mean it's a lot of work for myself but i guess i couldn't be doing that without just like how good the tools are cool po solver being kind of the main one yeah po solver everybody loves po but nobody knows how to say it whether it's pio or po <laughs> i just i just switch like every third time that i say it just just, <laughs> just to make balance, sure I'm being balance inclusive. It out. yeah yeah like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be wrong if you switch it every third time. <laughs> I haven't um, taken a hard stance, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh so a couple more questions, man. We'll wrap up and then we'll have you back on in the relatively near future. Hopefully not a pandemic in between this episode <laughs> and the next episode. Be great, yeah. Have you ever strongly believed something about poker over the course of your career only to change your mind later on? And if so, what led to that change of belief? Deciding if I should give you the strategic answer or like the big, the big picture answer. Just give me both. <laughs> I'm greedy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, something that, something that comes to mind that's like maybe a bigger conversation is I, I used to very strongly believe that poker was a meritocracy. So like that poker, like the industry itself was like this sort of fundamentally great, like stripped down version of, of capitalism where like you just you know, you put in the work and you just rise your way from like zero to whatever it is that you deserve. Mm -hmm. And like the good players get the money and the bad players lose the money and that's the way it should be. And like, that's just, uh, I mean, I just think that's not true. Um, now I'm not sure exactly what changed my mind on that. Like it's probably a gradual thing, just like more understanding of like social structures and more understanding of like, I don't know, a very basic example is just like the private game environment compared to the public game environment. But then like, you know, taking in social considerations, like having a starting bankroll and being able to drop everything to pursue poker and just having a lot of like startup privilege that lets you kind of move your way up the ranks. And then also being able to continue to take risk over and over and over again, so you can stay up the ranks. Um, yeah, like better understanding of that has developed, like just as I got older, I suppose. One could make the argument though, that like being able to take the time to invest into poker is like part of the meritocracy, right? Because like, yeah, that, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's a huge privilege to just be like, I mentioned at the, at the beginning of the pod, right? Like I go, first of all, I go to university that like, you know, my parents supported and funded and spend most of my time there just like learning how to be good at poker essentially. <laughs> so like I, I had like four years set aside to just like train, like no risk no no downside basically i mean who gets that right like very very select group of people get that starting point and that yeah it's it's lucky the rest is almost just like yeah i mean you you know you have to be smart and work hard or whatever but like the 
you, you don't even get in the door if you don't have kind of all that freedom. Yeah, which That's means like it's tough. Like young people. It's a young person's game, really. Yeah, definitely. It's like a young privileged person's game, but it's yeah, like very it's it's tough, I guess, for me to like change my mind from like oh the like poker is great to poker is great but could do a lot better. Uh, I think that's like I think that's where I'm at now. Like I don't I don't think that this is like I don't think it strips away like the the cool process of being able to build like zero to whatever like sky's the limit sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also yeah just like ref- allows me to reflect more on on maybe how to help like promote ways for for other types of like stories in poker, like other types of path pathways, um, rather than just that, like the one that I did, right. Anything or come to probably mind that both of us did any ideas you got circulating? Because I, if you think about this, you're going to have ideas. <laughs> yes. Um, well, not really my own. I mean, I pay attention to like, you know, there's, uh, actually spoke with a couple people earlier in the year about like, different diversity projects that already exist in poker that I think are pretty great. There's like a women's led organization. I think it's poker power or power poker. Power. Yeah. Power. Power. Yeah. You're familiar. Yeah. Yeah, They do like, you know, they teach, they use poker as like a platform for teaching like life skills essentially. So like the the end goal isn't just like bankroll growth, right? Like, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really smart way to take poker and like extend it to people who don't, necessarily have like the freedom or the path to just be a monetary uh pursuit so i think that's like a really clever way to reach out first of all to women who are just like not a big part of the industry but then also to like to think about success in a different way like to think about success in poker in a different way which i think is like a key variable there in terms of making it more accessible to like a broader demographic yeah it's something that like you would have to experience to sort of understand the downstream benefits of poker, like in career, business, and life. But I mean, it, there there are certainly like so many life lessons, so many business lessons, so many things that you can learn from this game. It, it really is a great teacher. And I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be like the end-all be-all. You know, you don't have to like yeah. go pro. You can just use it to learn lessons and grow and, you know, develop as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you mentioned like the privilege of being young and spending all the time learning poker. It made me think of, uh, I believe it's Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, where he talked about hockey in Canada. And it was a story that he's like, basically, he recognized there was a common denominator as to the hockey players that would end up going pro or play, competing at a very high level. And the common denominator ended up being like, hilariously enough, what month you were born in because at six years old, the difference between like somebody that just turned six and somebody that's about to turn seven is massive. It's a big difference. They're bigger, they're faster, they're stronger that one year. And like the bigger, stronger, faster kid, well, they get in the higher level groups, which means they get better coaching, which means they get better access, which means they rise to the top. And then the people who were born earlier kind of fall through the cracks like they have to be exceptional to rise up if you're younger than the other kids and like that to me it just kind of like 
struck a chord when you were talking about poker and the path and all of that of like, yeah, it could just be as arbitrary as like what month you're born in or like what's going on in your life that allows you to pursue this thing um, with no restrictions. And yeah, there, there's a lot of that that come into play as it relates to, you know, being a professional poker player. Like if I would have had responsibilities as a 20 year old person, no chance. I, I would not have been able to pursue poker in the way that I did. Or if I had had any passion about anything else in the world, then I probably wouldn't have been able to pursue poker. But like I didn't and I was trying to find my way and I, I was just like, maybe not like you, because I think if my parents would have told me not to do it, I think I would have just said, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> like I'm doing it anyway. Um, doesn't matter like what anybody tells me, but, um, that's just kind of my rebellious nature, uh, coming bubbling up to the surface. But, um, yeah, yeah I mean, I, at least at 19, I was an idiot, stupid, arrogant, all the dumb young person things. But I did, uh, I did know fundamentally that like, I can save up some money and lose it all. And it's not that big of a deal. Like I can just start over and rebuild. And I think there's like a, there's a lot of freedom and power that comes with that of like, yeah, I'm not afraid to fail because like, I don't have very much anyway. And I could just make it all back by going to work at Applebee's or wherever again for another couple of months. Anyway. All right. We'll, we'll segue on beyond that. And final two questions, uh, Mr. Rabichow, do you have any projects you're working on that are near and dear to your heart? Uh, yeah, I mean, the so I guess we t- we talked before the pod started, like about the group coaching project I've been doing with Run at Once. There's there have been like a couple different coaching projects that I've you know half started or or gotten into, but that's the one that's like in full swing, and and I'm really happy about the basic idea, and and I've seen a lot of, uh, I I don't know, either maybe I just haven't been looking for it previously, but a lot of other training sites are, are producing similar, uh, environments, which is this like group learning environment where, you know, seminars are live. Uh, you have some sort of like path from A to B where you take in like a group of students and, you know, have objective outcomes for the end of that path. And that's (laughs) just like, (laughs) wow, that's crazy. Linear learning paths. Wow. (laughs) You don't just have to like figure shit out, um, all on your own. Yeah. Like there's very much, I mean, I, I think that run at once has fantastic content on their, you know, video platform. Right. But that's what it is. It's a, it's a video platform. And I think, you know, what, what we're trying to address and like, this is basically like, you know, I, I felt really strongly that we could just be teaching more directly or more effectively. And this is sort of like the project that came out of trying to bridge the gap where like you have some really smart people who are just aimlessly consuming everything and they don't necessarily know how to like internalize it and apply it to themselves wherever they're at today and like take them to the version of themselves that they need to, or, or they, or they aspire to. So that project uh, we just finished the first, I guess the first like official group. We did a test group back in November. So having done it twice, it's, um, yeah, it's like, it's growing rapidly. We had really, you know, really strong interest just out of the gate, which I was excited about. Um, but at the moment I'm the only coach who's doing it. I, I am hoping if this continues to be like, you know, a, a 
mainstay project on run at once i'm hoping like other coaches will lead other groups with different focuses you know different games um ideally to me this is just like a you know almost its own like training environment that uh, directly sort of progresses people towards progress and or towards success rather than uh sort of indirectly giving them the tools to have success which would be like the videos right like I think of like the videos as it's like you've got 5,000 books to learn poker in a library. And every day you walk in and you read like three pages in one book and then you put it back on the shelf and then you just take another book out the next day and read three more pages. And like that isn't going to get the job done, that sort of scattershot, you know, shotgun approach. Um, that's really, I mean, that's really the way that I've, I've approached it too. And like, it's it's difficult to dial yourself back because like you want to give more but like you do also don't want to like bury people either with information so that they get confused and lost and all the stuff and so like everything that i've made as well is like targeted at one thing and we're going to get really good at this one thing and then we're going to move on to the next thing which is like really the only rational way that i the only rational way that i think poker can be taught is like teach this one thing, move on to the next thing, move on to the next thing. And like, um, the interactive element, like you said, I know pokercoaching.com has like interactive webinars. And I think BBZ also has regular interactive webinars, stuff like that, I think is important too, where you have community, right? Because like, like you said, you've got 15 to 20 people to thank for being an influence in your poker career. I could say exactly the same. And like, you need that community. You need those to have those discussions with people who are on the same path as you, who are passionate, driven, and motivated. So like all that stuff just sort of fosters that environment of community and collaboration and growth. And also like, let's get really good at one thing and then let's just move to the next thing and get really good at that instead of like getting 2% better at one thing and then 1% better at another. But then when you got 1% better at the second thing, you kind of forgot some stuff about the first thing. So now you're actually like 1% better. Um, and then it just like, it's just diminishing returns. I, I just don't, to me, I, I don't find it super valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, and there's like, you know, there's always the course format, which, which you see a lot of as well. I mean, run at once has a number of courses and pretty much every training site I think has, has some number of those, but, but again, they lose that sort of like direct point of contact where someone is evaluating the the viewer or the or the student so to speak i mean i'm basically just saying like you know this is one-on-one -on -one coaching except a little more accessible and a little more affordable and you know the group environment sort of like automates a lot of the learning that that would otherwise just be like dependent a bit on the coach um and i'm sure you you see this as well like when you do a lot of one-on-ones you you want to like make your students self-sufficient so that they can like continue on with the learning process you don't want them to like feel obligated to come to you the mentor for like all the answers every single time right mm -hmm. um so it's also trying to establish that so that they don't like rely so much on on me as a coach yeah 100 percent. i mean te teach them how to fish and they fish for a lifetime and, and also like if you don't teach them how to fish as a private coach they will badger and bug the living bejesus out of you all day long you'll just have like endless streams of <laughs> confusing messages in your in your inboxes across the board
you you can see there's also selfish reasons for this as oh. as, as i agree you don't <laughs> yeah like i mean i i've thought about this very heavily i see the angles and like there are there's some very selfish elements to this yeah but it's good man that sounds like the right path and uh where could they check that out at runitonce.com uh, yeah like a link um i'll i'll give you a direct link i i forget the url but there's uh there's now like a coaching section of the run at once homepage so you can uh, navigate to like group coaching and there's some banners under my videos right now as well, uh, on run at once that link directly to that, just Kevin rabbit group coaching. But yeah, the run at once homepage has all that information. Awesome, man. I'll put that in the show notes and the listener can click right through if you're interested in group coaching with Mr. Rabbit and uh, final question, where can the chasing poker greatness listener find you on the World Wide web? Uh, so I have a website where I have all my coaching information. That's just www.kevinrabichow.com. That wasn't taken. That was not <laughs> taken. I know it's, it's amazing. Wow. We've, we've actually, the, the Rabichow name is unique to my family, which is great. It's kind of a made up last name. So <laughs> if you see, if you come across any Rabichows, they are related to me. Yes. Um, www.bradwilson was unfortunately like the third domain taken on the entire internet. <laughs> yeah, you're competing with 20,000 other Brad Wilsons. I just want to be the most famous Brad Wilson in the world. That's all I want. And like, there's like Olympic, Olympian Brad Wilsons. Like there's just these insane high performing Brad Wilsons that I'm just like, I'm not, I can never overcome them. I can't even be the best one of me um, in the world. But yeah, anyway, I digress. <laughs> Have you tried buying the your like the domain name? No, I haven't. I haven't haven't stooped to that. I'm afraid that they'll just be like, "Go fuck yourself, inferior Brad Wilson," and that'll be okay. the end of it. <laughs> so yeah, that's. Uh, I have all my coaching information there. I'm also on Twitter at krabichow and uh, still making videos with Run at Once. Awesome, man! It's been a pleasure having you back on the show. Thank you for your time and your energy once again. We'll have you back and uh, take care, brother. Thanks, Brad. Looking forward to it. Take care. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast. 